session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. On Instagram Live for the show, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program. The shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Before I get started, a few announcements. I've uh, mentioned a few times on the show, I'm getting more involved on the app clubhouse which is a audio only app where people can create rooms and clubs and have different conversations i'm very new to the app i've only done a couple of um, events so far or rooms but i actually made my own club yesterday so feel free to join that club it's called psych talk with dr farid i don't love the name myself but there's a 25 character limit so try to make it fit there and what i'm actually going to be doing is the books, I discuss them on the show here, but many times people have asked me if there's some way to have a discussion about the books. So I'm going to have weekly book club meetings or rooms um, Mondays at 1 p.m. Los Angeles time. That's at least how I'm going to start it for now. We'll see how it goes. So the first one will be next Monday, which will be on this uh, week's book of the week, Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein why we are polarized. And so um, we've talked a lot about this issue that we are very, very polarized, unfortunately, especially in the United States, but around the world when it comes to our political discourse. And so this book by Ezra Klein explores that. So as always, I'll talk about it on next Monday's show. But for the first time, I'll try the book club on Clubhouse as well. I'll post some things probably on my Instagram to help you get to that, but you can find me on Clubhouse Psych Talk with Dr. Farid. Okay. Uh, also, another announcement, it's still up in the air, but for next Wednesday show, April 28th, I might be uh, very excited to um, have Dr. Mark Solms joining me on the show. Still coordinating, so it's not for sure, but got uh, an initial a response that that might work. Uh, his book, The Hidden Spring, I talked about last week, which I thought was remarkable, really insightful, and was honored that he was even open to being on the show. So hopefully we'll have him on next Wednesday's show. I'll give you updates about that. Let's get to the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight. It is Change by Damon Santola. Change, How to Make Big Things Happen. And this was, I think, maybe the first book I read. I didn't know he was a sociology professor, although what he discusses is relevant to lots of different fields. Uh, but it was an interesting book looking at how do ideas spread? How do new behaviors and beliefs spread? What are the differences uh, between them, actually, which can be quite interesting? And, you know, we always are thinking of we want to make changes. I know I do. Positive changes in the world. But how do we... Um, make that happen? How does it actually happen? How does actual change happen when we're looking in a bigger scale? So in the beginning of the book, he discusses some misconceptions we have about how things tend to spread. And, and one of them is the myth of the influencer, that if you really want some type of an 
idea to spread, you need to get some big influencer, some big celebrity talk to talk about that issue. And that can work for certain things, but not for um, what he calls complex contagions. And so maybe I can explain this concept because it's quite interesting, this distinction between simple contagions and complex contagions. So a simple contagion can be something like, let's say, information or a viral video, let's say, that spreads. And so these things spread um, in the way we think about, for example, how COVID has been spreading, that if any just one person can spread it to many people, they spread it to many more people, kind of like a fireworks display. Uh, and that's even the geometric pattern that they use to describe these types of spreads. Uh, it's just one person is enough. So with COVID, for example, you only need one person to spread it to whoever they are around. Those people can spread it to more people and it keeps going forward. So that's a simple contagion. And so people thought for years, and he talks about the research that seemed to support this idea or people were so set on this idea that uh, this is how everything spreads. Even if you want a new technology to be adopted, uh, he talks about birth control in Korea, um, how Twitter became widely used. People thought all of these things would follow that same type of pattern, but they actually realized it doesn't seem to hold true. And Damon Santola himself has done a lot of research exploring uh, these dynamics and the difference between the simple contagions and a complex contagion um, that I was just describing, where actually those don't just spread like a firework display, where if one person tells one person they adopt it, it's a much more, as the term would imply complex process that actually relies on the ways people see the information, how they feel about the information, their social networks. And so this is where the, the science of network science comes into play. This has a much bigger impact on how these types of beliefs and behavior spread versus information. So simple contagions, we can think of things like information, just having an awareness of something. Let's say uh, maybe we can say that there is a coronavirus. That's a simple contagion. Just knowing about it, you just hear about it once or one person can spread it to many people. Um, but let's say belief in the vaccine, actually wanting to get the vaccine, that could be more of a complex contagion that people can know about the vaccine the information can be easily spread, but wanting to get the vaccine, that type of a belief or taking that type of a behavioral change, that doesn't just follow the simple contagion pattern. Um, one of the differences between the two is that if we look at a simple contagion, we're just focused on reach. How many people can this information get to? And then once it gets them, well, they know it. It's already done. But when it comes to a... Um, complex contagion, we're actually looking at something called redundancy on top of the reach. And redundancy, usually usually we don't think that's a good thing. So if we're trying to spread something, we think if I spread it to one person, I want them to spread it to eight people and they spread it to eight people each and it's going to spread that way. We don't want there to be people sharing it amongst each other. That would feel like a waste. But what we find in complex changes is that it takes a little bit more to make people change. And he gets into the different issues that are involved. And research found that it's not like the information spread. And this makes sense. Just having the knowledge of something doesn't mean you're going to change your mind. 
a lot more goes into changing our behaviors than does just becoming aware of something or hearing about, let's say, even a song, the way they can go viral. Things don't spread that way. So this was a big realization in the research of how ideas spread or how beliefs spread uh, in network science that there is a difference between a simple contagion and a complex contagion. And this difference is very important in understanding how to make something spread. If you want to have a group of people um, change their behavior, how do you make that happen? And actually, the vaccine can be a good example because we see that just giving the information doesn't lead to change. Just because people um, hear about the vaccine, even hear about the science, if they already have their beliefs, and if they also belong to a certain group, the information isn't going to change their mind. And that's a really big point to keep in mind. Um, you know, if we also keep remember the book Think Again by Adam Grant, that I think a few months ago, that was the book of the week. And actually, he's here on the cover giving a little blurb uh, in praise of this book change that I'm talking about today. Uh, but we saw that when we're trying to convince someone of something, a lot of times the harder we push, the more they get strong in their ideas. And that's what we tend to see. They get more polarized. And that also relates to the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about next week. People get more strong in their beliefs. So if someone who, let's say, doesn't believe that the vaccine is good and has negative beliefs, if you tell them you're so stupid for doing this or thinking this way, look at all this information, what's wrong with you? they're going to even more strongly believe in what they already believe. You're not going to change their mind in that way. And as Adam Grant was saying, you know, and I always think is an important idea, you want to have a conversation, hear them out, show them you respect them, show them you understand them or want to understand them. And you're presenting your side. If you present it like you know you're right and they're so wrong and stupid, you're probably not going to get very far. But this book also explains how the information is not enough. Just spreading the word doesn't make people change their mind. It actually could even backfire depending on what's going on. And so we, one of the things we have to accept is that we are, we are social beings. And I know a lot of people, they really like to emphasize how much they think for themselves. And of course, it's important for us all to think for ourselves and really to try to take the time to evaluate why am I doing this? What do I think about it? What's making me think this way, feel this way? But we also have to accept that we are all influenced by the people around us. And so and I see people post things like, oh, people are sheep and look at all these people doing this or doing that. But we have to also accept we are sheep in that way too. Or maybe we should just change the analogy and rather than sheep meaning that you just follow people, we should think, well, people, oh, you're being such a person. Because that's something that we do as human beings. We are all impacted by what people think. If I tell you here's a new law that's coming out and 90% of people believe in it or agree with it, you might think it's not going to impact me at all. I'm just going to evaluate it 100% uh, unbiased. But of course it will. And vice versa. If you hear 5% of people are in support of it, it's going to have an impact on you. And so we have to be aware that we are going to be affected by the people um, around us and try to be more aware of it rather than try to tell ourselves I'm not and, and talk about other people and how they do it. Actually, this reaction that people have of saying, oh, people are sheep and these people are sheep, it's one of those classic things we do of projection where there's something we see in ourselves and maybe we don't like, uh, 
And so because of that, we force it on other people or look for it in other people to say, look at all these sheep blindly following. I only think for myself. When it's probably because we know deep down that we also just follow people sometimes are greatly affected by what other people are doing. And as a result, we don't like this. So we try to take it out of ourselves and put it on other people. I think this is also something that goes into people looking so much for other people to be racist. Now, let me make it clear. I think racism is a huge problem in the United States, very, very big problem, and we have a lot of work to do to resolve racism or to make progress when it comes to racism. At the same time, when you see what happens on uh, platforms like social media, people are almost looking for someone to attack. We should definitely look for the... um, the racism that exists and try to change it because that's of course very important but sometimes when you see the reactions that people have to me it seems obvious things like cancel culture when they go to the extremes that people are because they have their own idea that they have some racist beliefs within themselves because as human beings we all have biases they look for it in other people to project it on them and to attack them and say, look how bad those people are. So if we actually come to terms of the fact that I myself might carry some racist beliefs as well, just living in society, um, that will probably make us more aware of how we respond to others as well. So we know that anything we hate really strongly in other people, it it could just be that it's because it's a bad thing and racism, of course, is. But still, we always want to look at, is it possible that there's something within me um, that has this principle or this characteristic, and that's why I'm hating it so much in other people. Um, so, you know, the book discusses these types of issues about how we're affected by others. And a lot of times what we see when people are making changes, they're affected by the people around them, their friends and the people that they um, are close to when they start making a change, we're more likely to make a change. And this is why my brother Parham, he's told me this a lot of times in research on advertising, that they find that, of course, advertising works. That's why they spend billions of dollars on it. But still, nothing is as powerful as word of mouth. So if you see a commercial for a restaurant, you might think, okay, it looks pretty good. But if your friend tells you, oh, We went to the best restaurant last night. It's amazing. You have to go. That's going to have much more impact on you than the advertisement ever can, no matter how good the advertising campaign is. So we see that people, when they make changes, um, it's very much uh, affected by the people around them. So going back to the study uh, or looking at birth control in Korea that I alluded to earlier, um, they were trying to spread birth control because uh, the the ways that the dynamics were changing in the country, they were facing overpopulation because more people were surviving and there was advancements in health and nutrition. So they were trying to bring about birth control. There were some norms they were fighting because having a big family was important and birth control was something that was really frowned upon in the culture. But what they found was they needed to target small groups of people, and that's how things started to spread. And what they even found was that it wasn't one type of birth control that became the most popular everywhere. What actually ended up happening is there were different villages. Like he said, there was a vasectomy village and an IUD village and a pill village, because in different areas, what people were doing and what they saw people doing around them had a big impact on what they then did themselves. So to make that change, the information wasn't enough. All the science 
wasn't going to be enough to change their minds. What was most important is seeing the people around them, that validity that they got by seeing people like them, people they agree with um, and are connected to, changing their behavior, and that had a big impact. Uh, another good example, I think, was when they, he was talking about Germany and doing uh, solar power, trying to make solar power more popular. What's interesting is that it's hard to get some people to start making a change, but especially when the change is visible, it could start to work in the other way. So first, everyone on the block is like, well, no one else is doing it. I Maybe there's some reason it's not good or it's not legitimate or it's not right to do it. But then once you see, let's say, other people on the block start to do it, you can have pressure go the other way where now you feel like, well, if I'm the only one the only family that doesn't have solar panels, we're going to look bad. And so that has an impact on you then now feeling like I should do it. And it could reach a tipping point where now everyone uh, feels they should get solar power or solar panels on their roof. And that's something that uh, happened in Germany, which was quite interesting. So we're very much impacted by the people around us. And this book does a good job of explaining in much more detail, of course, than I can share with you, the different dynamics at play that affect how we um, can create change and how, for me, one of the big take-homes was this difference between a simple contagion and a complex contagion, that to create behavioral change uh, and people to make big changes in their life, the information is not, a sa- not the most important thing. It's the ways that people are affected by the people around them. And as I said, we all want to ex- have, need to accept that we are affected by those around us, whether we'd like to accept it or not. As always, it's more important to be aware of the reality rather than to deny them. So uh, I found the book quite interesting and definitely had some good points that I will carry with me in understanding change on a more structural, systematic way, which is is very important to keep in mind. Uh, That was the book Change, How to Make Big Things Happen by Damon Santola. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, So the book this week that I was talking about was Change, How to Make Big Things Happen by Damon Santola. And as I was saying, information itself is not necessarily what changes people's minds. And that might seem hard to believe or accept. And again, we might think, no, I'm only coming from a place of information. I don't, you know, get emotional about things. But I would invite you again to recognize that you almost definitely are making a lot of your decisions, thoughts, political beliefs. There's a lot more emotion that is involved. Jonathan Haidt has done a lot of research on this topic, which I think is interesting. Actually, his research is from a long time ago. I'm not sure if he's still doing that, but it was very meaningful in showing that our political beliefs and a lot of our moral beliefs are actually much more of an emotional reaction or response rather than just based on the information that is at hand. So what we tend to think is I am either for gay marriage or against gay marriage just because of the information or the moral issue at hand. There's no feelings involved because I have all these reasons. But we what we don't tend to realize is what's really happening is we have an emotional reaction or response to the issue which then points us in one direction. And then we come up with the reasons really after the fact. So it's like uh, our mind has this like lawyer that's working, kind of how lawyers work, right? If you're the defense lawyer, you just defend your client. It's not that you necessarily think they're 
innocent or not guilty, but you just know that that's the position you have to take. And so it's kind of like the same thing. We hire our own brains to be uh, our lawyer to defend what we believe. Um, and again, going back to Jonathan Haidt and his research, he showed this by presenting people with these moral issues and they would have a reaction and they, he would say why and they would give reasons and he would slowly take away their reasons, somehow prove to them um, that those things, let's say we took care of whatever the issues were and still they would say, well, it's still wrong and they couldn't say why. He called this moral dumbfounding, um, but it's that we still think something is wrong, but we can't have any reasons about it, which in a way points to the fact that it's more of an emotional response than purely a rational or informational type of a response. And we see this happening throughout history as well. When you consider something like gay marriage that I, I, I use as the example, in my lifetime, I've seen in the United States huge changes in Gay marriage, first of all, I mean, just the treatment overall of LGBTQ individuals, but gay marriage has changed considerably in how it's viewed by the public and the laws, which of course coincide to some degree. The issue itself didn't change, but the percentage of people that are in favor of it or who are against it, against it has gone down and favor has gone up, is quite significant. So that's telling us something is going on. Many of the same people, it's not just everyone died and it's new people, it's a lot of the same people whose ideas and views have changed on the same issue, not because the thing has changed, but more than likely it's because people around them also changed, it became more acceptable, and so it made it more okay for you to change your mind as well. Or as I was saying before, we are affected by what other people think. So. If you find out 80% of people think something, well, then you are more open to it. But if you already, let's say, are not for gay marriage and it was 20, 30 years ago, and you see a, a small percentage are in favor, you feel pretty good about your position. Again, most people wouldn't want to acknowledge these things. They'd want to think that it's just based purely on their logic and their thinking, but we can see that that's not the case. We all tend to change our views over time, not because we've learned some brand new information, but because we come around to feel differently about the issue. So I think it's good, as always, to be aware of ourselves and what contributes to what we're thinking and feeling. And because of that, we need to recognize, okay, I might think I'm such a rational, logical person, but it's not really what's calling the shots a lot of times in what I think. And so because of that, we have to be more open about what we even currently believe. Um, I've talked about this concept of being open-minded. I think it's a, one of those funny things. A lot of things are like this, that everyone thinks they're open-minded. I'm not sure if I've heard someone tell me I'm so close-minded, right? Everyone thinks they're open-minded. And I've heard people talk about their family being open-minded about themselves, you know, whoever it is. And then you get to know that person or learn about them and you see they're, they're, they don't seem to be open-minded at all. Um, but everyone thinks that they are because what most people think is that I'm open-minded about things that I should be open-minded about, but about other things that I'm right, I shouldn't be open-minded, right? So if I ask you what's the capital of California and it's Sacramento, you don't think I should be open-minded to consider maybe Los Angeles or Long Beach or San Francisco, 
Do you think? No, I know what it is. And so that's how people are in general. Almost everyone thinks they're open-minded. It's just the things that they think they're right about, they're, they don't think they should be open-minded. So if you feel like you know, quote unquote, know that gay marriage is wrong, you think I shouldn't be open-minded about this. It's morally wrong and bad and whatever else that you, you think about it or you really feel about it that then you think about. Um, and so you don't think you, you should be open-minded. That would be wrong to be open-minded about something that you think you are right about. And so what I'm saying is we should all be a little bit more open and recognize that the things that we think we know, we maybe don't. And that's another theme that came up in the book, Think Again, which I really enjoyed by Adam Grant. But, you know, a lot of times we think we know things. When we have a feeling about it, we might have an opinion about it or a belief about it. But knowing, we probably don't know so much. There's a lot that we don't know, and there's a lot that we think we know that we will realize actually maybe we're not so sure about. Um, I think it was Ray Dalio in that book said that I should think of myself as stupid a year ago or something, maybe making it dramatic, a year ago, because if not, then that means I didn't learn anything in this last year. I should constantly be learning new things, updating my ideas, understanding things more clearly. If not, then what did I do in this last year? But that also means that in this moment, I should know that a year from now, I will know a lot more than I do now, or I would hope I do. And my ideas will become more refined. I might change my opinion slightly on things. I hopefully will learn a lot of new things. So if I'm being humble and also realistic and seeing that mindset that every year I should be learning more, well, then I know that today, uh, when I look back in five years, I'll think, oh, I, I didn't know that much, or I knew so much less than I knew now, which means I need to be open-minded right now that things that I think I know might not necessarily be so true in the way I might feel they are. Uh, so I think that's an important thing for us to all be aware of when we're talking about things. And actually, um, it definitely, I'm sure will relate to this book, Why We Are Polarized by Ezra Klein, which is the book of the week for this week. When people talk about political things, I'm blown away that everyone just has these strong ideas about this is it the vaccine is this or it's that socialism is this you have to tax this way and everyone is just so certain about anything they're talking about when really how can you be so certain even the experts in the field that you're talking about probably aren't so certain and there's some disagreement economists can't even agree on exactly what's the best way to tax or how much taxation is, is the right way to do things but all of a sudden you're the expert and you know for sure and some of this is also because in social media it's almost asking for us to be more extreme because extreme viewpoints are more likely to spread and go viral and get attention right if you say i hate these people are the worst people people might spread that but if you say here are a few things i don't like about what so and so did you probably won't get as much attention you won't get as much um, spread when you uh, when you do that. So people are almost encouraged to be more extreme because that's what's going to, to spread. That's what's going to sell. And so unfortunately, that's encouraging people to think they have to say they know for sure. You can't think, you can't just say, 
I have this opinion or I really think we're not putting enough emphasis on this aspect of the issue, you have to say this is totally right. If you disagree with me, you're totally wrong and immoral and all these types of things when really you, you just can't know. And so we should change the standard for ourselves and also other people. If someone tells you, I know exactly what's going to happen with the stock market, I would just say, I don't believe them, not because I don't believe them. I just know it's not possible to be so confident about something like that, where so many people have disagreeing thoughts. But again, this is another thing that's spreading with social media. Actually, a few people sent me a video of someone, uh, you know, talking about something with how to invest and how to know exactly when to invest, and it's going to go up, and then you know exactly when it's going to go down, so you sell. These things are not that black and white. People that are studying it for a long time can't make that kind of a prediction. But if you're someone who wants to invest some money and wants to try to make a lot of money fast, you hear someone so confidently talking about something and you think, well, if they're so confident, they must be right. They must know what they're talking about or else they wouldn't say these things. But yes, they would because people who come off that way they get a lot of attention. They can sell a lot of products, whether it's themselves in some way or if they have some kind of a class or something. They make it seem like they have this truth that they know. And it could be comforting to think that people know in this way. Oh, there's this guru or this very wise man or woman that knows everything about this. And all I have to do is listen to them and my life will be good in that domain or maybe in general it would be that good. It sounds nice, but it's a fairy tale. And no one or no thing can take away your responsibility to think for yourself. It's just not possible. And anyone selling you that or making you feel like I can do all the thinking for you, they're trying to lull you to sleep to make you either, again, worship them, buy stuff from them, buy their product, buy whatever it is they want to sell you because they know that can work. We're looking for that. We wish someone could just give us all the answers. But the truth is no one has all the answers. Even science, which is remarkable, it's still trying to basically find out what's not true to see what might be closer to the truth. But to really say something has been proven to be totally true doesn't really exist in science. And scientists have to be open to hearing new information. And he talked about it in the book, actually, even scientists who we think of as such rational thinkers using the scientific method and all that, they tend to be slow to taking on innovations. When Copernicus said that the sun doesn't go around the earth, that the earth actually goes around the sun, people did not accept it for a long time, even really, I think, centuries even until it became fully accepted because it challenged things like that humans were so special and you know god made the earth and made us special and everything revolves around us literally the world revolves around me type of a feeling so they didn't want to accept it but even in science people have a hard time accepting some kind of a new truth so we have to recognize that no one has all the answers which makes things a little bit more uneasy as any kind of being and as human beings, we don't like uncertainty. We'd like to know something for sure. And so if someone tells us they know for sure, it feels good to be like, you know what, maybe they're right. Maybe they really do know it all. But we have to take the uncomfortable truth, which is that no one knows everything about something. That if someone is being too confident about something, it probably means they're trying to sell you 
on something. And we have to accept our own responsibility that even right now, this is what I believe, but it doesn't mean it's the truth. And this is something I talked about when we look at identity politics, which means politics related to different identities, men, women, LGBTQ, national background, racial background. There's also a way we can identify with our politics, meaning that I am a Republican or I'm a Democrat. And so everything that my party does has to be good and right. And I don't want to think any other way. Then we become so rigid that we can't see the truth anymore because it's not just looking at new information and understanding things. It's this challenges who I am at my core. And this is why when they do research and people who have strong political beliefs, when those beliefs get challenged, when they look at their brain, um, the way it was pre uh, presented in this one book that I read a while ago was that it looks like they're being attacked by a bear. But basically they're being afraid, which kind of sounds funny, but we can see that it makes sense in the sense that it feels like your identity, your sense of self is being attacked. So it's like you're being killed because you are being killed if you identify so strongly with your politics. So I'm all about thinking about things, looking at things. We should have opinions and beliefs about these things to try to understand them. But we want to make sure we're not too tied into believing a certain thing, a certain way, an ideology that gets us in trouble, can make us less open to hearing new things, and it makes our decisions even more emotional than rational. I did say before, we all have that tendency, but we can be affected in different ways by how much it matters to us for something to be true, how open we are to hearing the information and how open-minded we will be. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Right. Welcome back. So the book of the week that I talked about tonight was Change. Uh, and this was looking at societal change or bigger picture types of change, um, which I think was, uh, you know, quite interesting. But I thought in this last segment, what could be important to talk about is personal change. Or I wanted to look at that issue. So uh, the parallels, some of them are interesting because when we look at ourselves, the impediment of making a change rarely is the information. Sometimes it is. Someone, um, you know, teaches a, you a technique or tells you about something that you didn't know about. But most of the changes people want to make, let's say they want to uh, exercise or lose weight, they want to read more, they want to do something good, they usually know what it is. It's just hard to get ourselves to execute the behavior to execute it consistently enough. So similar to what I was talking about from this book, looking at societal change or change on a global or bigger scale, it's usually not just the information that's missing, um, although that definitely helps, but a lot of times that's not the case. Or if we look at something like addiction, once anyone has accepted that they have an addiction problem, the issue isn't knowing what they need to do stop taking the substance, let's say, but executing it is a lot harder because of the emotions that come into play. So why might that be? And this is something that people can get upset with themselves or upset with others. You know, when it's with others, you know, whether it's kids or family members, you, you know, that's not right. Why did you do it again? Or you knew you needed to do this. Why didn't you do it? Uh, and it sounds very simple. And so the first thing to recognize here is to realize that it always seems simple to tell someone else what they should have done or should do just like it's easy for you to tell your future self what to do 
which is the same problem we all get into. Okay, starting tomorrow, I'm going to do this every day. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to work out at 6 a.m. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to read 100 pages tomorrow. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. So the same way it's easy for us to tell our future self what to do, but harder to execute it, it's the same thing that people are going through. So we have to be aware of that and realize that. Again, the knowledge is not enough. Just because you know something is harmful doesn't mean you won't not do it. And just because you know something is beneficial doesn't mean you necessarily will do it. And so we have to be aware of that. Um, But why might this be? Well, you know, this actually does relate to last week's book of the week uh, about consciousness and how our consciousness works. And what's really at play is our feelings. And uh, Mark Solms in that book, The Hidden Spring, did a great job of explaining this concept that what's really happening is we have to be aware of these feelings to take care of these different needs or drives that we have, and they have to make a sense of urgency to get things done. So an extreme case is air hunger, or if you're suffocating, when you're suffocating, you can't just think, eh, maybe I should do something else, or maybe I should plan for the long term. You have to immediately find some air, whether that's removing an obstruction, let's say if you're choking, um, or if you're in a room that's filled with smoke, you need to run out of that room to get some oxygen. But it becomes the priority is taking care of that here and now need. And so constantly, that's what our brain essentially is doing. It's figuring out what needs it needs to take care of to then um, take care of that thing. And so this is why we always have to be aware that our bias is going to be towards the short term. And this is why we focus so much on things like delayed gratification, that you have to not just do what feels good in the moment. The reason why we talk about this so much is because so much in being just any kind of animal, essentially, but being a human also, is to try to do what feels good in the moment. We're driven towards that more, to do what good feels good in the moment rather than do what feels good in the long term. And this is hard to overcome because it is hard to make those two things equal or to make actually the longer term problem uh, or issue seem more significant than whatever you feel in the moment. So right now, if you're you know, listening to me at, uh, it's close to 9 p.m., you might think, you know, tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up at 5 and meditate for 30 minutes, and then I'm going to go for a walk and have a nice breakfast. I mean, it all sounds great. What a wonderful day. Because right now, it's just about thinking about what you think is good to do. But in the moment when you wake up at 5 a.m., the feeling of being tired comes up and wanting to go back to sleep or just be in bed. And overcoming that is harder in the moment at 5 a.m. than it is right now when you have to just think about it. You actually don't have to go through the feeling of it. You know, it's just like if someone tells you, oh, could you, you know, sit in a freezing room for two hours and we'll give you like some amount of money. You're like, oh, it's easy. I I can do that. No problem. Because you don't really know what it's like to feel what it's like in that room right now. You just think, well, of course I can do it. If it's worth it, I'll do it. But again, this is where we have to realize that as any kind of animal that we are, we have this tendency to be more prone to the short-term gratification. And it makes sense in a way, in a survival sense in the moment, to be focused on what are the needs in the moment rather than in five years from now, um, what is going to make us feel better. And that's why it takes a lot of effort. We have to re-motivate ourselves. We have to 
um, reconnect to our goal and why it's important. And this is why, actually, you know, I don't believe or agree with when people say, you know, manifest something and you'll receive it. So if you, okay, you want something, just ask the universe for it or declare it to the world and it makes it happen. No, you have to do a lot of work, hard work to make anything happen. But what I think is important in that mindset is in order to achieve a goal, as I was just saying, any of these types of goals, you have to override a lot of what feels good in the moment delay your gratification, delay pleasure, delay comfort towards something that's a bigger goal that takes longer to achieve. And so in order to override those in the moment feelings, you need to have some kind of a feeling about that goal. So this is why actually, you know, I I didn't think about it in this way, but I practice this with clients and even individually when we're trying to help them to plan long-term goals. One of the things you'll often do is you'll say, okay, imagine you've achieved your goal. So I've worked with people, for example, who are thinking about going back to school or not sure if they can go back to school, but they want to. And they think about how long the process is, how hard it is to get there. And so one of the things we'll do to help them or what can be helpful is to say, okay, imagine you're at your graduation. So, you know, you have them close their eyes and it's not just imagine you're at your graduation. That's it. It's let's go into every sensory detail we can which now that I think about it means we want you to try to get a hold of that feeling because that might drive you to go towards that feeling. But just as an idea, it's not enough. Okay, so what are you wearing? And so they maybe imagine I'm wearing my, you know, let's say suit or this dress and my gown and my cap over it. What, who do you see? And they might say, I see my mom and dad and my siblings in the audience, and they're so excited and they're so proud. Um, what do you feel like? And I, I feel proud. I feel so happy. I'm smiling. And then imagine hearing your name over the loudspeaker when they say your name. And so they imagine hearing their name and they get filled with this feeling of what it's like to experience achieving that goal. And I've thought about this, if there's some way we can encapsulate the way they feel in that moment, if there's some way to capture that, even I was thinking it could be a science fiction type of movie where you could take a snapshot of your feeling in a moment and somehow plug into it later. Uh, You know, I think it could be an interesting uh, prospect and maybe someday possible. Um, If you were able to hold on to that feeling of how good it's going to feel when you achieve that goal and could really feel it almost like on demand or any time your motivation got low, you would have a much better chance of achieving whatever that goal is that you're trying to get towards because you would feel how good it is to go towards that. It would make it easier for you to forego the pleasure in the moment for this bigger pleasure. But the problem is that once you get back into your day-to-day, those immediate feelings, those immediate needs, affects come up and they can be louder than this feeling that now is quieter because it's an imagined feeling so or feeling you have to try to imagine to bring back and so sometimes people even have an item that might remind them or a picture that might remind them that if we can infuse essentially all of our feeling into that item or that image or that word or phrase it could then give you that feeling again or at least close to um, that feeling that will then motivate you to keep going. Because again, to achieve any kind of meaningful goal, it means we have to override the immediate feeling of pleasure, of um, comfort, 
or of whatever feels good in the moment in order to push forward to get to that bigger goal. So going back to this idea of manifesting, I don't think it's just, well, if I think about it and then put it out there in the world, it's going to happen. No, that's not what's going to happen. But what we're saying is, or what I'm saying is that if you imagine the feeling and if you can get a hold of the feeling, that can serve as the motivation to keep you going, to then remember, okay, this is why I'm going towards that thing. This is why I'm going to not feel good in the moment because I know this better feeling is waiting for me and I can almost already feel it. I can imagine what it feels like or I can get in touch with that feeling and that's going to push me to go forward. So it seems very simple to think, okay, just delay gratification and go forward. But it does take a little bit of work and effort to make that type of a sacrifice in the moment for something bigger. You know, going back to the idea of uh, when we think about our future self, uh, well, two things come to mind. One is, you know, there's this quote people sometimes post, um, you know, you make plans and God laughs. But really what happens is you make plans and your future self laughs because it's not going to do a lot of these things that you're thinking you're going to do or it's going to be so easy to do. And when they've done research on the brain, it's quite interesting because, you know, sometimes you're struggling with something every day, but then when you think, oh, starting Monday, it's going to be, I'm going to do this and do this and do this. And really it is like you're imagining a different person and our brains actually show exactly that, that when you think about Um, your future self and what you're going to do, let's say, starting tomorrow or next week or next month, and they look at the brain, you're no longer using the parts of the brain that are associated with self-referential thinking or thinking of yourself. It really is as if you're thinking about someone else. And that's what makes it so easy to imagine this future self having all these characteristics that you have not displayed yourself because it doesn't necessarily feel like you. It doesn't feel like you're the one doing the things that you're imagining. So it makes it a lot easier to imagine yourself doing all sorts of things you've never done before. So again, when we're trying to make some kind of a change, it's not easy. The information itself is not enough. It can help, of course, to be educated and prepared and knowledgeable and know the techniques. That is almost necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's not going to get you there. We do have to overcome the inertia that's going to move us towards doing what feels good in the moment. And we have to build up the feeling that we will get when we achieve that goal and somehow try to capture that feeling again and again, because that's what's motivating. It's what's pushing you to keep going forward. You're imagining that finish line, whatever that finish line is for you and imagining how good that feels. So it's worth not feeling as good right now, either feeling uncomfortable, not feeling a pleasure, not feeling something that feels good now, because I know how much better that thing is going to feel later on. And that's basically this constant battle that we are having or dynamic that's playing out within our brains is trying to figure out which thing to do now, which things we can put off, which goal or which drive to make the most necessary one to do next. And it does take some effort because if we don't think about it, you will go back to the most immediate ones because that's where our brain goes first. We have to actively uh, strive against that. The good news is once you build some habits, 
You can naturally feel better doing those things that might be good for you, but that can take some time. And speaking of time, we're out of time for today, so let me wrap up for tonight. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolokwi. Have a wonderful night.